Welcome to the Insider's Guide to Finance, where we dive into stories from the front lines of financing public and private companies. I host seasoned CEOs, fund managers, bankers, brokers, and business experts who will answer your questions about how to properly engage investors, finance opportunities, and build outstanding success stories. We dig into the educational how-tos and mechanics of structuring good deals. You'll also hear about strokes of luck, tense negotiations, and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to the Insider's Guide to Finance. In this episode, we're speaking with Scott Melby, CEO of Uranium Royalty Corp. Scott brings 37 years of experience dedicated to the uranium industry. He has a deep understanding of both the commodity and the nuances of it, as well as the business of royalty and streaming deals. In our conversation, we talk about the business of Uranium Royalty Corp, the fine details of the uranium industry, and the potential of a pending bull market. As well, we get into the business and structuring of royalty streaming deals for resource companies. It is effectively another form of capital or capital alternative for financing, exploration, and development. Now, for any of our CEO and CFO listeners, I highly recommend listening to the end where we discuss royalty deals, as well as what it's like having some of the most prolific resource investors backing your company. These greats include Marin Katusa, who we interviewed in episode 55, or Rick Rule, interviewed in episode 79, as well as Warren Gillen out of Hong Kong. It's not often we get this kind of insight. These guys play at such an elite level in their investing. They're equivalent of top pro athletes in their chosen disciplines. And before we get started, I'm happy to host this episode with the support of Olympia Trust Company. Olympia is an outstanding provider of transfer agent and corporate trustee services and has been doing this from the Canadian capital markets for well over 20 years. I can speak from experience that the team strives to deliver on their promise of making it personal. So thanks again to the team at Olympia Trust Company, and I encourage you to reach out to them at any time. You can find their contact information in the show notes. Now, enjoy the show. Scott, welcome to the show. Hi, Corey. How are you? I'm doing great. The uranium industry has become something that's that's grown for me in interest. So when I got the email that you and I could do this interview, I was just thrilled. So I'm super looking forward to this. I, I want to break this up into to three pieces. One, I want to talk about Uranium Royalty Corp. I'm happy to say I'm actually an investor in it. It's been a really interesting story to follow. So I want to learn more from your perspective. Uh, then I want to talk about the uranium industry. And then also for our listeners, I want to talk about the business model of, of streaming and specifically about how to set up and structure royalty deals. So you know, with your experience, I think we'll be able to, to nail all these. So I'm really looking forward to it. No, it's my pleasure and uh, great to talk about the uranium industry and royalties with uh, your listeners and viewers. And uh, it's indeed very exciting times, which we'll, we'll get into what's driving uh, all the interest in uranium these days. Yeah. What do we start off with a background of, of yours, your career, and then we can get into um, talking more about uh, Uranium Royalty Co. And, or Corp. And, and the industry? Sure. Well, I've been very fortunate to be in the uranium industry now 37 years. Uh, since the mid-80s, I've uh, been involved in every aspect of brokerage trading of uranium, uh, procurement of uranium for a nuclear power station in, in Arizona. But the bulk of my career has really been in the uranium mining area, 
both with major companies like uh, and senior executive roles with Cameco for over 22 years, advising Kazatomprom in Kazakhstan on their transition from a state-owned uh, organization to a more market-driven company, and Uranium One uh, with their activities here in the United States and over in Kazakhstan as well. But more recently, I've been focused in, I would say, a more entrepreneurial phase of my career with Uranium Energy Corp. Texas-based uranium producer with operations in Texas and Wyoming, and also co-founding and, and leading Uranium Royalty Corp., which has been a very exciting development, which we'll, uh, we'll go into in more detail. But, you know, I will say, having been in uranium all these years, I've seen the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of, of the uranium price and public opinions towards nuclear. But I'd have to say that today, with this move towards green energy and lower carbon, energy future, the aspects of nuclear power that we've always known, the reliable, safe, baseload uh, supply of carbon-free energy. Good news is now we're getting a broader acceptance of that amongst politicians, investment community, uh, general public, and uh, it's really quite exciting to see the growth in our industry worldwide. Yeah, no kidding. And what a career and, and what an interesting multinational or you know very much international industry to be in and you know as as we mentioned in just our our preamble here the artifacts you have in your background there are just you know truly global so love to get into that uh, when it comes to uranium royalty corp take us into to what you do and and really how you compete sure so about 5 years ago a number of of real key resource investors and uh, sort of corporate investors, we've kind of looked at what was happening in the royalty and streaming space in the base and precious metals industries, a $50 billion industry that, that's emerged really in the last 10 to 15 years. And the big names like Franco Nevada, Wheat and Precious, uh, Sandstorm Royal Gold, these have been incredibly successful models, both for investors to get diversified exposure in, in commodity investments but also they've become a real go-to source of capital finance for the development of new mines and operations around the world. We were just shocked that no one had done it in the uranium space until us. So we founded the company, took it public on the TSX uh, close to two years ago, and are now traded in Toronto and in the US on the NASDAQ and uh, off and running. And, and as a young company, we're quite proud of the portfolio that we've established, but We've really only, it's the first chapter in the book, really, hmm. and uh, really looking to grow this company in, in the coming months and years. And so for the listeners who perhaps they've heard the name, perhaps they've heard URC as your ticker, but what are the details of, of the, the structures you put in place and, and the business model itself for creating value? Yeah, so a, a royalty and streaming company is, is unique in that we don't own the mines. We don't uh, have the, the, the large workforce and the standby costs of, of running the mines or, or keeping them offline or the lease and landholding payments. What we have instead are interests in these mines and developments producing uranium. And so their financial interests in the form of royalties on production or their physical interests in uranium produced, which is called a stream. So the structure is quite efficient. We can have a very small, com our, our company has, you know, four, five employees really uh, to run this company. We could double, triple the size of the company with the existing workforce. So the most important thing for us is 
is to have the te technical capabilities to evaluate projects, do the proper due diligence, mm -hmm. and uh, look at the whole universe of opportunities out there and decide where do we invest our dollars and become a counterparty in these various miners and developers' uh, future success. And that you know, uh, speaks to experience and, and being in the uranium industry over 37 years now and, and our technical lead, Darcy Hurstborn, a 20-year veteran with Cameco Global Exploration, we get uranium. We understand mm -hmm. the risks, the very unique risks and rewards, challenges and opportunities that the uranium industry and the uranium market presents. And we like it. Uh, so we do have a unique fit there that, you know, there are a lot of royalty companies out there in zinc, copper, gold, but none in, you know, specifically in uranium. And I think that gives us a leg up. We understand the counterparties that we're coming alongside to assist in their development. And for investors, they have the comfort knowing that we understand mine development and permitting. We've actually been active in running mines, permitting developing mines around the world. So uh, we're, we're really in a, in a field that we, we truly understand. So we're, we're up and running. We have 16 royalties in the portfolio, which for a young company only uh, two years as a public company is quite impressive. Mm -hmm. But we think the uranium industry with the bear market that we're now emerging out of and, and moving into this next bull market in uranium, there are billions of dollars worth of, of capital investments needed on the next generation of mines. So we really look to play prominently as a, a source of, of alternative finance for mine development and production. Great uh, uh, growth uh, capability, great pipeline of potential projects that we can invest in, but we can also invest in existing royalties. Like the, the majority of our investments to date have been acquiring royalty interests in the secondary market, if you will. Right. And royalties can be established with landowners. They can be uh, as a result of M&A activity where one mining company may sell an asset to another company but retain a royalty. Well, we've now provided a secondary market for those royalty holders to monetize their, their investments. So it's the right model and the right time. And uh, we'll certainly talk to where the uranium market is headed and, and the growth of nuclear energy, but we're, we're very well positioned. Scott, like my, my mind is just pinging with more and more questions here. And I just, you know, I'm just going to jump on to just one of them is, I, I think it's just so interesting that the ability to create and have a company with five or six, four or five, six employees to create such huge value and, and capitalize on value. And then also, and perhaps we'll get deeper into this later uh, with how you're effectively an alternative form of financing for other, for uranium producers or uranium projects out there. Now, with the, the 16 royalties you have or, or deals you have now in place, what do those look like? And, and what is the process you do to go out there and find these deals and, and do your due diligence on them? And, and what is the, what's the strategy behind that? Yeah, well, with a, acquiring an existing royalty uh, that's in place, we basically do a discounted cash flow analysis on, on what's the, the, the revenue potential of that royalty. And then we layer on our uh, various levels of, of risk. Obviously, a mine that's in production or can produce without a lot of risk uncertainty 
you know, we can pay a higher price for, for that royalty and, and discount it less from a risk perspective. Right. Something that's maybe 10 years from production and is, is not yet fully or even de-risked at all, those interests can be acquired quite cheaply, but they're, you know, they're, they're discounted quite, quite heavily. So we're basically just doing the, the future uh, cash flow streams, discounting them back and yeah. deciding what to pay today for that and, and put that in the portfolio. Now to nerd out a bit on on some of the the financing and, and finance lingo, when you're looking at parameters of IRR and your your discount rates, and you know what kind of variables do you work with when when doing this kind of modeling for the uranium industry? Yeah, there's so many variables, and and one size doesn't fit all. You know, obviously, uh, you know we have assets in our portfolio like Cigar Lake and MacArthur River in Saskatchewan, two of the world's richest ore bodies and, and largest producing mines in the world. Obviously, you know, that's going to be discounted less from risk, discounted less in terms of uh, from a financial perspective. So uh, hence, we can afford, afford to pay more for that factor. But we also go into the nuts and bolts of the geology and we look at the, the resources in the ground. How, what, what's, what extent has this ore body been drilled out? Is it is it uh, measured, indicated? Are they proven reserves, resources? We go through all that. And we may layer on our own assessment on that. We just, you know, we have to work off of generally what's public information or, or information that's provided to us, but we'll layer on our own assumptions. We'll yeah. also do the same in the mining engineering and uh, cost of production. Cost of production doesn't always impact us in terms of directly in the royalty. If we have a gross revenue royalty, we're a top line beneficiary. So if the mine produces, we get a percentage of the value of uranium produced and sold. In a net uh, income uh, royalty, net profit interest royalty, there we are relying on on the level of of profit generated. Now, in any royalty, we do a a competitiveness analysis to see that if a mine is, is out of the money, its likelihood of producing is low and hence our ability to receive a royalty is low. So even in a gross revenue type situation, we, we really look at it from a competitive eye and see how that mine compares to other, other mines in, in the region right. and, and globally. Yeah. Is, is there a preferred royalty structure that you go after? The royalty structures that we, we prefer are, are on the gross uh, revenue. They're the easiest to calculate and the most straightforward for investors to, to make a judgment on. A good example are our royalties in Saskatchewan, where the MacArthur River interest is a, is a gross revenue royalty the mine produces, we get paid. We also have the right to take product in kind, uh, oh, which wow. is quite attractive to us. We have an account at Canico's Blind River facility, so we can take physical uranium uh, if that's a preferred approach. With Cigar Lake, it's a net profit interest, and hence there's still some we call it a bucket of expenses that need to be drawn down before we start to pay out. So there's a lot more moving parts in net profit interest over, over gross revenue. But uh, either of those have a fit in our portfolio. And, and as I said, uh, streaming is also a good alternative for us. There may be a, a gold producer or a nickel cobalt producer or, or someone whose primary resource is, is other than uranium but uh, we could provide capital to develop a uranium circuit to produce even smaller amounts of uranium if it made sense 
we could provide that financing to the developer and take uh, 100% of the output of the uranium and share some of the upside with, with the miner in that case. So that's where streaming is very attractive. And, you know, we try to look, you know, this is a global business. So we're looking in every producing region of the world, yeah. uh, whether it's Australia, Africa, Canada, the U.S. Or, or, or elsewhere to see where we can kind of find these diamonds in the rough. I would think the uh, Cigar Lake and MacArthur River were two examples of that. Everyone is aware of those operations, but the existence of these royalties was not well known. And they were a remnant of the very early exploration days in the Athabasca Basin uh, with a company called Reserve Minerals, which mm. was uh, involved in the, the discovery. But uh, years later, I just retained the royalty and we were able to strike a deal to uh, acquire that from them and uh, in both cash and shares. So uh, it was a good fit for, for everyone involved. But we try to really scour the earth for those less known opportunities in addition to the obvious ones. What I, what I find fascinating is the 36 years in the business and, and it really is a game of chess, I would imagine. You know, there's mm-hmm. always dynamics changing, political pressures and, and so many things coming into play and, and having that, uh, that experience and that knowledge to be able to, you know, ask the right questions at the right time is really interesting. So very yeah. cool. Yeah. Now let's talk about the state of the market. Because, you know, the latest tweet, I think, that came from uh, Sprott Physical Gold Trust, they just bought another 800,000 pounds of uranium and are sequestering it. And and so a lot is heating up here. I think the the bears in the uranium world are are perhaps um, starting to take notice more and more that uh, something could be changing. But Give us the details on this. What's what's happening? What do you see? Yeah, so let's come back to Sprott because that's having very real and huge impact in the current uh, spot market, even as, as, as we speak today. But we were already in a situation where the uranium market was coming out of a essentially a 10-year bear market following Fukushima. It impacted both supply and demand of uranium. So we had to dig ourselves out of quite a big hole from the supply and demand fundamentals. But from that nuts and bolts kind of view of, of, of this commodity, we were already in a very good place where demand for uranium had recovered, fully recovered to a place above where we were prior to Fukushima. More nuclear, more electricity is being generated from nuclear energy today than, than was about 10 years ago. We're seeing you know, 56 reactors of come online around the world in the last eight years, another 51 more under construction. We're now seeing small modular reactors come on the scene and being uh, not just talked about as concepts, but actually being ordered and moved forward with both government support, but also private support. People like Bill Gates and Warren Buffett getting engaged in these small modular advanced reactors. So demand and growth for nuclear power is in a wonderful place. And the supply of uranium, though, because we've been in such a low price scenario for so long, we've seen a, a gap of about 60 million pounds annually between what we consume globally, around 190 million pounds annually now, uh, and uh, production probably coming in around 125 million. So this condition over the last four to five years has really had the impact of rebalancing the market. And by that, I mean, drawing down this overhang of excess supplies that were kind of made even worse by, by Fukushima. So We're in the midst of a transition right now from an inventory-driven market to a production-driven market where 
supply, uh, time to produce, cost of production, permitted licensed operations, uh, all are becoming more important. Whereas in, in recent years, it's really been an inventory driven story and hence why prices had fallen as low as $16, $17 a pound in uh, 2016. And today, price is moving through 37 uh, and even over $38 a pound in the spot market today. So incredibly uh, positive from fundamentals, but then, you know, they're just all being driven by this mega trend towards decarbonization and a realization that we can't get to where we need to be on renewables alone. Nuclear power is as clean and is as safe as wind and solar, but where nuclear power really just blows the doors off of wind and solar is the 24-7 aspect of the reliability of nuclear power. It runs 95% of the time, whereas a good wind farm or solar facility might run 30%. So as a society, we really need to figure out what we're going to do with the other 70% if we're truly going down this zero-carbon future that is really the norm today. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's been the global trend for some time. And with the Biden administration in the United States, it's really coming to the U.S. in form of, of public policy. So nuclear energy fits well in that narrative. And as I said, we're now seeing former opponents coming alongside and, and being proponents for our technology uh, politically. For the first time in my career, we have really a remarkable bipartisan support. I mean, we've mm. always been an industry that the the political right has always supported as part of an all-of-the-above energy strategy along with coal, oil and gas, wind and solar. But the left has tended to oppose us. Now we're seeing with this push towards green energy, Democratic Party uh, putting nuclear power into their, their uh, political platforms. Uh, the Biden administration th- through the energy secretary supporting the preservation of existing nuclear plants in the U.S. and supporting the growth of of new build and supporting uh, the domestic fuel cycle. So we really have a unique opportunity. There's very few things that Republicans and Democrats in the United States agree on these days, but nuclear is one of them. So feels like a bit of a unicorn, doesn't it? It 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 really (laughs) is. So the you know the growth. It's not surprising we're seeing plants being uh, proposed. I mean, the latest one that was really exciting close to to my home here in Colorado was Bill Gates proposing to build 350 megawatt advanced reactor in Wyoming on the site of a retiring coal-fired plant in Mm. the uh, service territory of Warren Buffett's Pacific Corp, uh, Rocky Mountain Energy. So we truly have the energy transitioning happening in one of the energy capitals of of our country in the U.S. is, is the state of Wyoming, where that transition from fossil fuels to green energy is going to hit the hardest in places like Wyoming, West Virginia. Uh, and if we can replace some of those jobs with uranium mining and the construction and operation of nuclear power plants, I don't think there's anyone of any political stripe that, that opposes such a development. So really exciting times. Is something that I heard, something along the lines that for every new plant that comes online, it takes three to four times the the amount of uranium to to commission that plant before it then is operating on a a regular cycle. And then when you see the China as an example, embracing nuclear in and just in such a Chinese way, like just power, (laughs) the power in which they're doing it is is um, those are some very powerful market dynamics. 
Yeah, and, and let's face it, the, the fastest growth is in Asia these days, whether it's in India or China, but also in the Middle East, you have the United Arab Emirates uh, building four reactors, two of which are, are connected to the grid. They've been built on budget, on time. Growth in China is, is phenomenal. They'll surpass the U.S. within this decade as the largest nuclear power program in the world. For them, it's, it's really to, to fuel their, their economic growth and uh, really do something about, you know, for them, you can talk about climate change and, and carbon impact on, on that. But for the Chinese public, whether you're in Beijing, Shanghai, or other major Chinese cities, it's a quality of life issue. The air pollution from coal-fired power plants has really reached unacceptable levels. Yeah. The same can be said in India in Mumbai or Delhi, where you can't see across the street on, on many days of the year. And these sort of red alert days are, are becoming more and more frequent and not the exception anymore. So yeah, it is a life and death uh, matter for these economies. If they want to grow, they want to achieve the same standard of living that we enjoy in North America, they're going to have to you know, do that and produce the energy that, that drives their economy in a way that isn't harmful to their population. And they get that and they're uh, all in on that kind of development. A question that I'm, I'm sure some people have is, is nuclear energy actually truly clean energy? Because you talk about nuclear waste and what happens with the waste then. So how is that addressed? Yeah, I think there are a number of misperceptions about nuclear and waste is one of them. We've probably, well, not probably, we have been the most responsible source of energy in terms of dealing with our waste than any other form of energy in, in the history of mankind. And what I mean by that is every gram of spent fuel or waste that's been generated from nuclear power since the 50s has all been safely contained and, and controlled and stored. It hasn't been pumped out of smokestack or out of pipeline into a lake or river. It's all been safely sequestered and stored. Now, the uh, scientific solutions are not beyond us. This isn't a scientific challenge. We either go to a permanent repository for that waste in a geological formation that hasn't changed for millions of years, or we go down the route like they've done in France where they recycle uh, spent nuclear fuel into new fuel assemblies. So either one of those makes sense. It tends to be more political than it is scientific. But a thing that, that your viewers should remember, the total volume of waste, say in the United States since the 1950s, if we took all of that spent fuel and put it in one place, it would fit on a football field at a, at a, at a height of 16 feet. So that's the total volume of waste. Wow. We're not talking about something that is just unmanageable. And if you, if you received 100% of your electricity during your lifetime from nuclear power, your share of the waste would fit in a, in a soda pop can. So uh, these are really manageable. Uh, they, they tend to be more emotional, political yeah, issue. Yeah. The same with safety. If you measure nuclear power in terms of fatalities or injuries from nuclear energy through all the, the billions of kilowatts generated since the 50s, we're the safest form of power. In fact, we're comparable with, with wind and solar in that regard. But I think the industry you know, could do a better job communicating. And I think there's a lot of fears about nuclear that I think are frankly quite irrational, but it's our job to educate people and and let them know, you know, how we compare to other other forms of energy yeah. favorably. Well, I, I can't help but ask when I look at all the artifacts behind you of this career, mm -hmm. you gotta have some pretty interesting stories. I mean, you've yeah. dealt you've dealt with people around the world in so many different ways. And 
you know, what are, what are some of the stories that perhaps really shaped your career? Being involved in some of these leading companies like Cameco, Pizatomprom, Uranium One, and being able to globally market uranium in, in, in you know, there, there are very few nuclear power plants around the world that, that I haven't had the, the opportunity to sell uranium into. But I think the growth of China and the emergence of China and being involved there and in the early billion dollar contracts that uh, Cameco signed with CGN and CNNC in China was very exciting. You know, you, you hear about the sort of horror stories of doing business in China, and it's a very difficult place to, to, to sell products into and, and deal with. I, I saw none of that because we had something at Cameco that they had and they desperately needed. And I, I found those negotiations to be the most amicable and straightforward that I think I've ever had in my career. So that was certainly interesting, being able to open up India with mm. uh, nuclear trade and be engaged in, in that, that market where very different than, than China in a lot of different ways. But for them, you know, uranium uh, and nuclear energy represents a very basic quality of life equation for them. There are millions of Indians that still do not have the equivalent of a light bulb in, in their homes and businesses. So they, you know, for them, it's just to bring a standard of living to millions of, of, of Indian citizens uh, that we all take for granted. So to be in the, in the early stages of sort of the international cooperation with India is very exciting. Certainly being involved in Kazakhstan, which has emerged as the largest producer in the world uh, with in-situ mines uh, across that Central Asian country and uh, see how they're transitioning these days. But uh, it's all been very exciting. But I think, you know, in this stage of my career, I can take all those experiences, bring them to these more junior entrepreneurial companies like Uranium Energy Corp and Uranium Royalty Corp and really grow these, these companies into a very exciting market. Yeah. Earlier in our discussion here, when you talked about the areas in which you have your 50 or 16 different streaming deals, I noted that you, you only mentioned Western countries. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious about that. And I want to talk about the geopolitics of this, because this could be for the longest time, petroleum was the, the global energy source that we all battled over. Is there tensions around uranium and is there, there potentially tensions and is there a, a geopolitical game at play that we're not there that the average person is not aware of? Yeah, very much so. You have you know, a situation where the United States really was the forerunner with Westinghouse and GE in the 70s and 80s and building reactors all around the world. Uh, European countries really being the centers and focus of growth. Now we're seeing really uh, the nuclear energy industries in Russia and China and uh, leading the way in, in Asia and, and, and countries, Thirty over 30 countries around the world are now either operating nuclear plants or, or building them. But a lot of that growth is going to India and going to the Russians and Chinese, which is good for our industry, but does create geopolitical tensions in terms of more and more energy supplies being kind of ceding that, that control to, to Russia and China. And that has implications in Germany, as you know, with the Nord Stream pipeline and uh, Russia's reliance on Russian, uh, uh, Germany's reliance on Russian gas. Mm -hmm. In the United States, we now re re uh, rely on about 50% of our uranium supplies from Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, and Russia. You know, that does cause some concern, uh, given the, the geopolitical tensions that exist in the world today. So I think there is a real desire to see domestic uranium flourish in the United States. And I think for utilities, 
it will be very important for them to have diversified supply sources. And that means, um, you know, sourcing from uh, mines in Australia, Canada, the United States, the African nations, Niger, South Africa, Namibia, all these countries are, are particular s- supply sources, but all of them present various risks and, and, uh, and challenges. So uh, we think being, you know, invested in, you know, with uranium royalty, being invested in mines that, that have, you know, lower levels of geopolitical risk is important to us, but we do have a, a diversified portfolio. So in our 16 royalties, we realize some are going to outperform our expectations, some may underperform, but if we've done our due diligence and our homework, we've picked more winners than losers in the portfolio and continue to add quality projects. Uh, for Uranium Energy Corp., you know, we're quite fortunate to have our mines and our main focus of operations in Texas and Wyoming, which are two of the best uranium jurisdictions, not only in the United States, but in the world. So definitely is, is an important factor. It's not easy to build as much as acceptance is growing for nuclear energy around the world. It's not easy to license and permit a uranium mine. An example, there's a mining project in Spain, which in a country that has 50% youth unemployment, the proposal to build a uranium mine in a region that needs the job should be a slam dunk, but hasn't gotten the the public acceptance for that mine to move forward. So mining industry uh, still faces a lot of challenges that way. But if you've got the social license to operate, uh, in uh, countries that have reasonable and, and, and uh, uh, solid regulatory frameworks, there's a real advantage there. But we've also got to uh, do a lot. I mean, the ESG movement is certainly present in our activities. So, uh, you know, we, we apply a filter to our projects to ensure that they're good stewards in their communities, they're mining in environmentally friendly ways, they're living up to their obligations to Aboriginal communities or, or local stakeholders. So that all is, is very important as we know it's important to investors, whether they're investing in a particular mine or company or in a portfolio of projects. Yeah. And I, and I can see the, the long tail impacts as it, as it would relate to you and to the, to the work you're doing that if any of these streaming deals go, go sideways due to, you know, political license or excuse me, social mm-hmm. license or ESG matters. I mean, that has uh, ramifications for you. What, I, what I'm thinking here is I'd like to talk about structuring streaming deals. And I also like to talk about your experience as a CEO. When we, we caught up the other day, we talked a bit about a founding member uh, or a founding investor, Marin Katusa, who yep. helped structure and set up uh, Uranium Royalty Corp. And that does not come without heavy demands. Yep. So how has that been for you? And and you know what are the standards which you, which you hold yourself to, and which you would expect your yeah. the companies you invest to hold themselves to? Well, we're we're very fortunate to have some of the the biggest names in in mining supporting us, and in fact, in uranium royalty, consider them co-founders in in our business. And these would be folks like Marin Katusa, Rick Rule, or Warren Gilman out of Hong Kong, Uranium Energy Corp with Amir Adnani um, as a founding corporate company in, in, in Uranium Royalty Corp. These are all resource investors that uh, really do the deep dives on, on companies. They value strong management teams that have actually uh, had success in exploration development operations and, and have been there and have, have shown to um, you know, excel in, in, in the mining business. They also do a lot of groundwork in terms of the resources in the ground. And, uh, you know, you mentioned Mary Contusa. 
I don't know how he's done over COVID because usually he's traveling just about every every day of the year visiting mining operations in in every continent. And so it's great to have them as backers, but they're also very demanding uh, shareholders. They expect the returns for their investment and and for their investor groups. Uh, I think uh, they should have confidence that uh, Marin is doing the the homework and legwork and keeping us accountable, not just uh, talking a a, a good game, but uh, really delivering results. So again, we love having them in our corner, but it holds us to a very high standard, which is exactly what we should be held to. Yeah. It's, um, I had the pleasure of, of interviewing Rick Rule as well. And I recall when he said, you know, even down to the board members, mm-hmm. if you've got a board member and an advisory member on your, on your pitch deck, and they've got no experience in a certain geological for, uh, formation that you were mining in, he's like, what are they there for? You know, yeah. that kind of due diligence, that kind of, of nuance in which these professional investors look at, it's, it's really interesting to me. And it, and it goes to show that their, their success is built on that amount of detail. Yeah. And I think for investors, let's face it, for a lot of resource investors, particularly retail investors, you know, they may not be mining engineers. They may not be geologists. And all of these companies look great in the glossy brochures and, uh, you know, on the surface. So it really does help to have a Rick Rule American Tusa really do that legwork and, and due diligence for them and give them advice in that regard. And uh, we certainly, you know, apply the same due diligence in our activities when we're looking at potential royalties and streams and really put these projects through, uh, put it under the, a bright light and really, you know, hold our management teams that, that were counterpartied with accountable in, in their activities but I think we also can come alongside them. We've had instances with uh, royalty counterparties where I've spent the entire day with their board and management teams and discussing all the factors that they may go through in terms of a restart decision, mm. uh, marketing, how much to market now, how much to market later, should it be base price, fixed price, which markets are, are the most important to pursue all which factor into a mine's uh, restart decision. So again, as uranium people, we can uh, not just be a financial investor in their success, but come alongside them from a a technical uh, partnership, if you will. Fantastic. Yeah. And I want to talk about some of the nuances of of structuring and working with these management teams, because, I mean, as we discussed earlier, this is an alternative form of finance for whether it's the mines or, you know, whatever level of operation that you would look to invest in. What are some of the nuances that would be missed by the CEOs and the financial teams who are looking to set up one of these deals? Yeah. Well, one thing that we are finding is that royalty and streaming is still very much alternative finance in the uranium space, but it has become mainstream in, as I said, base metals, precious metals, where it's no longer considered uh, alternative, it's mainstream. And so we are going through a bit of education to CEOs and CFOs, so they really understand that, that we should be a full option that they look at when they're looking to finance the development of a mine. And hence, when it comes time to uh, preparing a proposal for a royalty and stream, we actually model it based on their alternatives. What would it cost them to raise equity and the dilution impacts of such a decision or in a a debt facility? What sort of covenants, what sort of cost of capital would they face under those options? 
and we structure the royalties and streams to be competitive, not, you know, not an alternative form, but, but a preferred form of finance right. uh, in, in their decisions. Now, big projects that may need to raise hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, we may be just a, a component. They may access debt, equity, and royalties as part of the, the capital stack to, to get a mine into production. Yeah. So, and and, and um, formulate, you know, constitute part of their cost of capital. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. I find it interesting that it's just, you know, it's so early stages, it sounds like in the uranium industry, but so common in any others. Yeah. Why is that? I mean, is there any reason for that? Or is it just kind of? It just hasn't been as big. I mean, royalties have always been a part of the uranium industry, but kind of that Franco Nevada model has has not been, you know, taken to the industry until now. So again, we, I think we'll get CFOs and, and CEOs comfortable with, with this model and demonstrate that uh, we're, we're part of their capital finance strategies for, for their operations and are, are a good fit. So again, there's a huge pipeline. There's so much development that's needed in the uranium space. Uh, we're seeing now finally with the uranium price uh, moving uh, towards $38 a pound and, and towards 40 you know, Companies are going to need to make that that decision to move forward and finance, whether it's a new mine or restart of an operation, even a restart of, of a mine like Langer Heinrich is a royalty that we hold in the portfolio. There's still capital, significant capital involved in streamlining and restarting those operations. So we're really excited about the, the market potential and it's quite large. And uh, we just hope to capture a portion of all these capital needs going forward. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I'm looking at time here. I think we blew through an hour pretty right. quick. I think the last thing we should mention is the, the impact of Sprott physical uranium. Oh, yeah, we didn't. Carbon. We didn't go yeah. there. So, yeah, uh, let's uh, before we wrap up, talk me through that. What's happening? Yeah. There? And uh, it's interesting because I was involved in the management of the uranium activities at Uranium Participation Corp in its previous uh, structure. But the acquisition of that by Sprott and putting it into their physical trust business model has just had such an impact on our market, even over the last two weeks where they have now activated an at-the-market financing capabilities and uh, with them trading at a premium to their net asset value, they've been issuing shares under the ATM, raising capital, and almost real-time turning that cash into uranium purchases. So Hmm. they've really provided uh, more liquidity in the market. Uh, more price discovery. We've always known that the uranium market is very thin and sometimes the volumes are very small. And so in an oversupplied market, that 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 sort of inefficient market tends to keep prices down lower and longer than they need to be. But as we shift to an undersupplied market, this kind of demand hitting the market on a regular basis really proves to, to uh, provide greater price discovery. And hence, we've seen uranium prices go from the low 30s to approaching $40 a pound in a very short period of time, just on the, you know, this Sprott purchasing and other purchasing that's occurred by other market players around the fringes of what Sprott's doing. Yeah. So again, it's really been a welcome, maybe a welcome development uh, for the uranium market. I'm not sure if the electric utility companies, uh, what they think about it, but at the end of the day, uranium is a commodity. They need to look at it very strategically. And I think there's been a bit of complacency with uranium prices low for so long that there's just kind of a notion that there's no scarcity of uranium going forward. We're right. just off spot or near-term supplies. But I've, I've lived through many 
times in our industry where, you know, the industry has been focused on long-term contracts and even partnerships in joint ventures between consumers and producers. So I think we're just transitioning back to a more strategic phase in the uranium market. And it, it maybe took Sprott coming in and, and buying up some of these remaining excess inventories to really kind of shock the, the market out of its doldrums. Wow. Wow. Fascinating. And, and I have to say, like, I'm really, it hasn't been long, but I've, I've taken a shining to the uranium industry and I just find it fascinating. So I've really enjoyed the, the, the conversation, what you've shared with us. What about any final thoughts? And then how can the listeners be following your work and following your company? Yeah. So Uranium Energy Corp, UEC, ticker symbol, we're traded on the New York Stock Exchange and uraniumenergy.com is our website. With URC, we're, we're traded as URC on the Toronto, UROY on the NASDAQ. And again, our website there is uraniumroyalty.com. So there's uh, obviously a lot of specific information on the companies. I'd also encourage you, your viewers, if, if you want to learn more about the status of nuclear energy globally, go to the World Nuclear Association website or the Nuclear Energy Institute in, in the United States. But uh, it'll give you a feel for uh, the growth that we're seeing in the industry and some of the new developments in these small modular reactors. So again, very uh, positive outlook. I think for resource investors, uranium probably has as good a narrative around the supply and demand and all the factors that you would look to in a resource investment, probably the best position commodity in the world today. So uh, we're excited to see the capital inflows. They're already beginning, but I think we're, we're pretty much in the first or second inning of, of this uh, uh, uranium recovery. So even though the, the equities have moved quite a bit off their COVID lows, we're still very much early in, in the story and uh, uh, encourage uh, investors to take uh, a greater look at, at the uranium industry and look at UEC and URC. Excellent. Well, Scott, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you, Corey. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.